0: Good morning! Today is the day the Lord has made. We are rejoicing. We are glad in it. Even in the midst of circumstances in our lives and the lives of others whom we love and certainly news that we hear from around the nation and around the globe, that is uh, cause for discouragement or distress or even despair. You and I, as as people who abide in Christ, we recognize um, that the world is not as it should be. But that does not diminish the glory of God. It does not diminish the reality of grace. It does not diminish the opportunities before us today to live as kingdom citizens in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. And so that that's my word of encouragement this morning. Like, I recognize that life is hard. Like, my life is hard. Um And I recognize that the things that you're facing today are difficult and can be discouraging and disappointing and could be cause for despair. But don't go there. Don't go there. Um, go to Christ. Go to God the Father and plead with him and say, Abba, Father, you know, I need you in this moment. Thank you for your presence and your power and your provision and your providential grace. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to abide in that. I'm going to stay connected to you. And I'm going to I am I'm I need to draw from you today the things that, wow, the world is absolutely just sucking out of me. Um and so let me just encourage you that way and then, and let me ask this question um do you feel lonely today like just just pause and consider that for just a moment do you feel lonely maybe not just today but do you feel lonely in life uh, let me just say if you answered yes to that question you are not alone now, i know that seems counterintuitive you're feeling lonely um today you're not alone one number one because in christ we are never alone Uh, we not only have Christ, but we have a body of believers that if we will reach out uh, to one of our brothers and sisters in Christ, we will find fellowship and community. Like, that is how this works. However, let me say this. If you are an American and you are a millennial and you feel lonely, you're also not alone uh, in your generation and your experience today. Loneliness and friendlessness is actually epidemic in America right now. 25% of millennials that's young adults in America. We're not talking about teenagers anymore. That's, that's, an ex, that's Gen Z. And we're talking about millennials. We're talking about young adults. They say, 25% of them, that's one in four, always or often feel lonely. 25% say they have no acquaintances. 22% say they have no friends. No friends. 22% no friends. 27% no close friends. 30% no best friend. That means that almost one out of every three young adults that you encounter today has no best friend. People, that's a mission field. This ought to be easy for us. This this ought to be easy for us to get out there, and yet somehow it's not. So if we want what we say we want for people, which is for more and more people to know Jesus and come into his kingdom, um, then we have to befriend them. We have to befriend them in the same way that he befriended us. We have to get proximate to them. That's the incarnation. We have to walk alongside them. That's discipleship. We have to make sacrifices on their behalf. That's agape love. That's who Jesus is. In the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus talks about, you know, being the true vine and the father, the vine dresser, and the disciples is the branches. Um, we're, we're certainly supposed to bear much fruit. But starting at verse 12 of John 15, Jesus says this, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing. I've called you friends. Um, for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Friends, what a friend we have in Jesus, absolutely. But what might it look like for us to simply walk that truth out into the world, into today's epidemic of loneliness? That's the conversation I'm going to have up next with Brian Bays and Tyler Flat, their best friends. There are also instructors at Boyce College where 50 students are taking a course on Christian friendship, classical Christian friendship. What does it mean? What does it look like and why do we need it in the world today? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Well, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. I am talking this morning with professors Brian Bays and Tyler Flat from Boyce College. Good morning, gentlemen.
1: Good morning. Good morning, Carmen.
0: So, um, Tyler, welcome. We we have not you and I have not had the opportunity to chat before. Brian and I have uh, have had the opportunity to visit. We have surveyed in advance this course on Christian friendship that you guys are teaching together as friends. Uh, At Boyce College. So, Tyler, we're going to let you lead off. Give us an update. The class started Monday. How many students are are engaged? And uh, and like so far, uh, what have you what's your experience?
1: Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. Uh, So we originally actually had fewer enrolled than 50. And usually what happens at the beginning of the semester is people decide they've got other subjects they want to take. So we usually lose a few off of the top of our enrollment. But this time we actually gained some enrollees and some auditors, yeah. which was surprising to both of us. And uh, it was a great start to the semester. We had a, an unexpectedly deep conversation about our readings. Yeah.
0: So that's awesome. So, Brian, um, wh- the last time that you were on, you know, you disclosed to us that Tyler is your friend. Um, so hopefully, as he shares today, um, he concurs with that assessment of your relationship. So, Ty- <laughs> Tyler, yeah, are, I, you on, are you on board I, with that?
1: I do. Yeah. Aristotle says two friends need to be mutually conscious of their goodwill towards one another (laughs) to be friends. And I think that is true of us.
2: Sometimes I probably test those measures with how many times I aggravate him and scare him and hide in his office and grab his leg and just sort of freak him out as much as I possibly can. Yeah, he's he's very aggravating. You all can pray for me.
0: (laughs) So what I, okay. So um, I, what I would love for you guys to do is just talk a little bit about what is friendship, and then what characterizes or distinguishes a distinctively Christian friendship. And you may have already touched on a couple of those things just by like right, uh, offering up a definition from Aristotle. right? You guys are approaching this from uh, from classical literature. You're also approaching this um, from you know, your experience as Christian men. So what is friendship? And then what characterizes or distinguishes a distinctively Christian friendship?
2: Yeah, those are great questions. I think uh, I'll take the first part. and I think Tyler can take part two uh, is <clears throat> I think friendship is something we actually talked about this Monday in class a little bit, well, quite a bit, actually. Uh, it is, uh, as you touched on, even those millennials who seem to not have it, crave it. Uh, It's ubiquitous. It's a ubiquitous kind of desire and affection that everyone everyone has. And and they should. Um, We were we were created in the image of a God who has enjoyed through eternity a deep affection and relationship with one another. And we are made in the image of someone who 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 knows what it means to 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 have affection for someone else. And so friendship is something that that we are we are built to crave, want and desire no matter what society or context you find yourself in. It is something that that we want. It is a desired affection, uh, a desired and affection for uh, a relationship with someone else that is uh, built out of mutual, mutual affection, love, commonality, goodwill, mutual interest, mutual desires. Um, And so it's. It's really one of these things that is uh, the way I kind of described it in class is it's often discussed but rarely defined. Mm-hmm. And it's even uh, it's even less common to have it understood. You can define it, but to understand and define are not always the same thing. And so friendship is something that we all intuitively want, we all intuitively desire, and we all have, right? I think, you know, you and I chatted last time about this to where, you know, not everyone will be married. Not everyone will have um, a job of some form. They'll have jobs, but not a, maybe the job they want. They won't always have children, but uh, everyone will either have friends or they will want friends. And so this is this is a topic that non-Christians and Christians have discussed for millennia, for, th- for thousands of years. Uh, and it's important for especially young millennials and even young, uh, what Gene Twenge calls the iGen, uh, especially those who, sort of the iPhone generation, if you want to call it that, um, really need to understand uh, and really need to have a grasp of, of what it means to be a friend.
0: All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Tyler's going to answer the question what characterizes or distinguishes a distinctively Christian friendship? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, That's actually one of my favorite songs from when I was like in uh, eighth grade. So I just got to go ahead and put that out there. If you've never heard it, uh, it's because you weren't in middle school in the early 80s. OK, so uh, I am talking with Brian Bays and Tyler Flatt. They are professors at Boyce College. They are friends. They are co-teaching a course in friendship. Uh, and Tyler is just about to tell us what characterizes or distinguishes a distinctively Christian friendship.
1: Yeah, I think um, we can learn a lot from classical views on friendship uh, about how many of the things that naturally people think about friendship uh, are compatible with our design and are compatible and kind of arise out of a Christian worldview as well. So Cicero, for example, says the foundation of friendship is a really deep consensus about things divine and things human combined with love and goodwill. And I think biblically we could say, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Um, For Christians, that consensus can run a lot deeper uh, than between people with sort of different kinds of worldviews who interpret reality differently. So when Christian friends come together, uh, they're not only experiencing and enjoying that mutual goodwill, they're sharing a journey through life uh, in which both are sort of traveling according to the same map, Both are headed towards the same destination that they understand in similar terms. And I think that can make for a much uh, deeper and richer relationship in many ways. And um, this is all part of what we understand as our design, right? Brian was just talking about uh, how the Trinity figures into this and the fact that all of reality testifies to the importance in God's design of community. We're built for social relationships. It's not something that happens by accident. Some uh, pagan philosophers talk about friendship as though you don't really need it. You can be a self-sufficient, virtuous person. It's just sort of a luxury. And that's not the Christian perspective at all. Right. And, you know, one of the things yeah. that comes up is uh, that the New Testament concept of brotherhood between believers or sisterhood is actually difficult to really rigorously disentangle from friendship Mm -hmm. they're overlapping categories Mm -hmm. in many ways and and we think that's that's by design we're social beings it's part of who god is and who he's designed us to be
0: okay so um brian how did the two of you become friends and um and then maybe add to that how do adults make friends real friends today because you know I, i feel like it was easier when i was a kid than it is now that i'm an adult
2: yeah, boy, I, I I couldn't agree more with that latter part. Um, well, um, so Tyler was a doctoral student at Harvard at the time, a PhD student at Harvard at the time. And he sounds I kinda was,
0: smarty pants. I'm just yeah, saying. He, he, yeah, he
2: he he is, you know He very he, easily oh, quotes
0: Aristotle and Cicero, neither yeah, of whom he, do I easily quote.
2: Yeah. You should sit next to him like in faculty meetings or 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 walk in and you see he's just sort of reciting <laughs> Latin for fun. So, you know, it's just you know, it's just one of those things that that he does. Um I'm just kidding, he doesn't do that. Um when uh I was helping to run a program, I still run it now uh solo, but I was helping uh, another colleague run a program where we would take students to Boston for a few days. Um, and we would tour various uh, campuses, one of which was Harvard. And Tyler was our tour guide for several years for Harvard's campus. And so um, my colleague uh, at the time, who's, who's now at another university, um, introduced us. And um, we I, I don't I distinctly remember meeting him in a Mexican restaurant right near Harvard yeah. um, and us just sort of talking and passing. But even in that kind of moment, I, I kind of sensed this like. Um, Lewis talks about this like you two kind of moment, right? Like you, like you, this is of your interest too. Uh, And then he was hired as a faculty member here. And uh, it was just an immediate kind of affection. I think some of this has to do with both of our passions and desires and our research interests and um, readings uh, just kind of overlapped. Uh, But also, I think Tyler and I have a similar kind of temperament in terms of personality and, um, you know, uh how how we kind of go about life is is very, very similar. And so we just kind of immediately struck a deep friendship very quickly that um is just really I think a blessing and a gift from the Lord for me. And I know I, I would assume Tyler would say the same. I won't speak yeah. for him. But um but yeah so so that's kind of how we got to meet and then we've always sort of connived po- possible ways to teach courses together. Um, we have at randomly just sort of walked into each other's courses and started teaching together at times. We did that last semester where we planned about an hour before the class, let's teach together today. And we did, and it, it worked fine. I mean, you could ask students, but it worked fine on our end, it seemed. Um, so yeah, so, so we've just been, uh, kind of a deep abiding friendship kind of really from the beginning, it seems. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of how we met in terms of, uh, adults, ha- how adults have friends, Man, I think I think in some sense I I probably just have to confess that I think in some ways I like I'm still searching for how to do that well. Um, at the same time, mm-hmm. you know, though I I'm teaching a class on friendship. Uh, part of the joy, and I think this may be one of the secrets that may be sort of disarming for students is professors teach courses, not because we figured it out, but because in many ways we want to figure out what it is we're teaching. That's right. Um, yeah. uh, and that we want to learn more about what it is. Well, I, frankly, one of the reasons why both of us wanted to teach this class is because we wanted to have a dedicated reason as to why we want to study friendship more and to, to become better friends. And so I think part of learning what it means to be a better friend as an adult is, is really, um, And I don't mean this in any kind of sort of worldly way is to is to know yourself, is to know what sort of things you love and what sort of affections you have and um, and desires and interests you have. And, And to not really apologize for those, but to but to believe in those and then to find others who have similar interests and have similar desires. And I know with work and family and with jobs, I think the rhythms of friendship as adults look different. But I don't think that that has to mean that the depth of friendship has to look any different than what it was as a, as a child. And I, I, and I think in some ways the depth of friendship is deeper as friends because you have life and you have struggles and you have trials um, that are different as adults certainly mm-hmm. than you than you do as kids. But my friendships look different at 34 than they did at 24. Uh, but I would say that my friendships at 34 are deeper than they were at 24. And I think mm-hmm. some of that has to do with attaching oneself Two people in a place and a space at a particular time, and just really investing as much energy as I can uh, into those friendships. Yeah, and I, I think in many ways, oh, sorry, go ahead, Carmen.
0: No, no, go ahead. I, I'd love to hear your answer as well. I think in
1: many ways, we become more conscious of the importance and nature of friendship as we age. Um, when we're kids or adolescents, we mainly think about You know who can I who can I play my favorite game with who's sort of similar enough to me that we can sort of get along with much effort and it happens naturally and this is I think why many people can recognize friendship when they see it but find it very hard to define because all of us have experienced it but very few of us have taken the time to think consciously about it and as Brian said that's one of the primary reasons we wanted to teach this course is to compel ourselves and our students, because it's good for them too, mm-hmm. just to think really hard to focus their attention on this thing, which is ubiquitous, it's everywhere, but we so rarely actually focus on. And one of the reasons we need to focus on it as adults is because it doesn't come so naturally anymore. Right? We tell our college students, man, you're in five or six new classes this semester, you're meeting 30 new people every five seconds, that is not going to be normative for the rest of your life.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, you know, you settle into rhythms with the people you work with and the people you see on a regular basis. But there does come a time, I think, when it's very healthy and proactive for adults to take stock of their friendships and say, what is friendship? And how? what role do I want it to play in my life and the rest of my life? Mm-hmm. You can't take it for granted anymore. No. Yeah.
0: So I think, uh, gentlemen, we'll conclude our conversation today um, with I'm just going to make an observation that I think lots of folks today um, assume that friendship is never going to require forgiveness. Like my friend is yeah. always going to agree with me, support me. Right. Jesus called these guys friends it, yep. in the face of knowing that Peter was yep. going to turn right around and deny him and that every single one of them was going to was going to run away. Like, right, they right. were going to run away and hide. Um, yep. And so I think that, you know, when we talk about resilience, maybe our next conversation, because I'm going to just go ahead and say the three of us are going to have a next conversation, right, about this because we're not done. Does that feel true to you?
1: That would be great. That, that would be great. Okay.
0: So maybe our next conversation could be about resilience because it's one thing to make a friend. It's another thing to, like, continue to be someone's friend when when that relationship requires some resilience and mutual yeah. forgiveness.
2: Yeah, i um, right. That'd be a great topic and helpful. Yes, yeah, agreed.
0: Brian Bays and Tyler Flat are at Boyce College. Um, let's be praying for them as they shepherd these 50 students through this course on classical and Christian friendship. And as they uh, counsel and coach us a- along this way as well, as we're all learning together. Thank you so much, gentlemen.
1: Thank you, Thank Carmen. you Carmen.
0: We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Okay, so um, uh, if I sound a little distracted, I apologize. There's a bug in my studio, and it's flying around. And I'm and if so, if you hear me turn away from the microphone, it's because I'm trying to catch it. So if you've been driving in your car and there's that fly, or maybe maybe it's not like a full fly, like it's like a fruit fly. I think what I have flying around in here is fruit fly. And um, and you've tried to like smush it against the windshield or your side glass, and then you realize the people in front of you are stopped. Like that's the way I feel this morning. In studio, I'm just sharing this trauma with you. Trauma—that's the misuse of that word. Um, oh, we're going to talk about the misuse of words. The, the, we're going to talk about words. Next up with Hunter Baker. Uh, so, Hunter and I uh, both are concerned about the meaning of words and how words are used in not only our conversations but in the cultural conversations of the day. So, I want—I want you to think about words that used to mean one thing. And now mean another. And just to decide, does that bug you? That was my connection to the bug in my studio. Um, Does that bug you? It bugs me. It bugs me that words are co-opted for political agendas. It bugs me that that the rainbow has been co-opted for a meaning other than that which God has given it in Scripture. And so we're going to talk about the meaning of words. Hunter Baker is up next. We love uh, chatting with him. He's from Union University. And we're going to talk about lying. We're going to talk about race or racist. We're going to talk about the word criminal. We're going to talk about love. We're going to talk about sex. I don't know how far we'll get. We're definitely going to talk about gender. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, so we're coming up on uh, fall share. It's actually going to just be in a couple of weeks, not the week of Labor Day, but the week after Labor Day. I think I'm counting right and um, we're looking forward to sharing with you those impact stories of how the ministries that you engage with here on faith radio like mornings with Carmen have actually encouraged you in your walk of faith every single day and that means that we are now in the gathering stage of those of those stories and so how has your life been hopefully positively impacted um, by participating with us uh, with us each and every morning here on mornings with Carmen or Or how has listening uh, along with Susie Larson or Bill Arnold, you know, changed your life? Like, we want to know. Like, part of it is we want to know because everybody wants to know what the impact of of their work and ministry is on the lives of others. But we also want to know because this is a ministry of a large group of people across uh, uh, across America. Um, And you can be a part of that faith radio giving family as well by contributing your story. And so um, Fall Share is about making sure that the ministry has the financial resources that it needs to go forward. But we do that by sharing with, with our donors, with people who are our, our ministry partners, the stories of lives that have been changed and impacted positively by the ministry. So we need your stories. So you can send your story um, online by contacting MyFaithRadio.com. There's actually a contact page there uh, at MyFaithRadio.com. Or you can just call... 877 2484 and share your story. Um, if you want to email me directly, you can do that at carmen at carmenatmyfaithradio.com. We'll be right back.
3: I recently read 57 million Americans don't have even a dollar in emergency savings. Hi, this is Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. I get it. Saving money can be tough. It's so easy to spend on the day-to-day things thinking, oh, I'll get more tomorrow. But you may not realize how not having money saved up for an emergency causes a lot of stress. Worrying about all the unpredictable things that might happen can really eat at you. Your car breaks down and you need a new one. Your child needs braces. You have an unexpected medical expense. It isn't fun to think about all these scenarios, but it's easier to face them when you have the money saved up to cover them. And you'll cut down on your stress knowing you won't be caught off guard. Being wise with money means you're prepared for the future, whatever it may be. And when you're prepared, you can confidently make decisions that reflect your values.
0: Hunter Baker is back. He is an author. He is the Dean of Arts and Sciences at Union University. Uh, you can check out what he's doing at hunterbaker.wordpress.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at Hunter Baker. Um, I don't really know if he's a hunter or a baker, but I am going to ask him this morning, what bugs you? Because I have a bug in my studio this morning that is bugging me. So is there something specifically that, like, bugs you?
4: Well, uh, yeah, there's a lot of things that bug me. I don't like it when guys wear jeans with flip-flops. How about that? <laughs>
0: <laughs> there you go. Which I feel like takes us directly into the dress code conversation, but I wasn't really going to go there first. So, um, so <laughs> I'm going to hold that. I'm going to hold that. Um, I told people that we were going to talk about the meaning of words. And so one of the things that bugs me is when words get co-opted um, and people apply meanings to those words and then uh, make assumptions about our mutual understanding of a particular word, and they just plow ahead in a cultural conversation or even uh, plow ahead in terms of uh, uh, like sort of the global conversation that we might be having in the culture as if we all agree on their new definition of a word. And so you you responded on Twitter to something that somebody posted. And I'm not going to use the direct um, reference here, but I'm going to use the words that were um, that were sort of in play, the word lying or liar, the word race or racist and the word criminal. And I guess I just want to focus on that last one, because I think that, you know, lying as Christians, we know what that is. Um, Racism is kind of a totally up for debate conversation today. But the word criminal, I have understood the word criminal to mean that that's a person who not only has been you know charged with a crime, but actually convicted of a crime. And now it seems like we're just allowed to people call people criminals if we think they've ever done anything wrong.
4: Yeah, I think that's I think that's totally true. I, that's part of our political culture is that we have uh and maybe maybe it's kind of a kind of sort of in the shadow of Watergate uh that we are constantly accusing people in politics of engaging in criminal behavior. Uh I think that I think that Watergate, the impact of Watergate was so devastating for at least a short time in American politics that there's a desire to kind of to kind of figure out how to weaponize uh, charges of criminality. So, you know, I mean, it pays. Right. I mean, that is that is a way to get beyond the normal categories and to defeat someone.
0: Well, or at least malign them in public, which for sure. Yeah. 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 Um, Okay, so when we talk about words, I think that one of the words um, that's in play today And this is my this is my segue to a conversation about a Supreme Court, a a case that's coming before the Supreme Court in case people are wondering what I'm doing here. But as soon as we um, as soon as we talk about the meaning of words in our generation, like right now, the 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 concept or the conversations related to sex and gender um, are words in play, I would say. So tell us what is going to be coming up in front of the Supreme Court where where the definition of a word is really going to matter.
4: Gosh, well, I mean, oh, we've, right. we've we've already <laughs> been there, right? I mean, okay. uh, look, the 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 prime example would be Obergfell, right? Mm. I mean, take the word take the word marriage, okay? Marriage for the entirety of human history, literally the entirety of human history, uh, as we have it, has meant uh, a male female pairing. Uh, now you know, there's been there have been uh there have been men who had multiple wives you know you think about someone like King Solomon or something like that but there was but there were no no marriages that were male male pairings or male female pairings It simply does not exist uh homosexuality existed, but there was no uh no same sex marriage and that word uh was literally. Uh, redefined first by people who were uh, sort of, uh, maybe call them cultural entrepreneurs or provocateurs or something like that. Uh, But I can remember in the late nineties, I was in law school and working for a religious liberty uh, law firm at the time, uh, the Rutherford Institute. And John Whitehead told us as law students, we're going to lose the marriage debate. And uh, we were all Totally and completely incredulous. I did not believe in the late 90s at that time that marriage could be redefined, but he was completely right. So even a word as well established as marriage, and I would argue that's about as well established as any word we can think of, uh, has been redefined. Uh, Another word, husband, right? Husband can now mean a man married to another man. So. Hmm. Uh, if you had asked somebody in 1985 what a husband is, nobody would say a husband is a man married to another man, right? They wouldn't even conceive that. Uh, but that's but that but but it has been proven that the meaning of words can be radically altered.
0: Okay, so we got to take a quick break. When we come back, um, <laughs> Dr. Hunter Baker and I are going to talk about a case that is coming before the Supreme Court. Where the court, um, this is going to come October the eighth. The court is going to have to decide um, two questions: whether the term "sex" in federal employment non-discrimination law actually includes gender identity, and whether or not it's um, unlawful stereotyping to actually have a dress code that's based on biological sex rather than gender identity, which is going to, of course, beg the first question which is the definition of the word sex and whether or not that is now defined as gender identity that it's important it's an important conversation the meaning of words matter if we're going to mutually understand one another not only in our communication All right, well we're back. The power is out where I live, but um, the magic of uh, of Verizon means I could reconnect via my um, me, my cellular data. So let's see how this works. I'm with Hunter Baker, and he and I are talking about the meaning of words. So, Hunter, what um, what how how does a court approach a decision about redefining something as massive as gender identity?
4: Uh, I think they're going to do it through cultural drift. Um, if you look at the jurisprudence of the last 20 years, I explained how uh, how relatively easily marriage was redefined, even though that's a super stable concept uh, throughout human history. So then you go to gender. Um, I, I think that probably at every major university in the United States, um, it is probably common now for students to go to an orientation where they get a name tag that lists their preferred pronouns uh, I think that almost every major corporation in America will uh, get to a point where similar similar things will be going on um, you know I even interviewed a job candidate from your part of the world uh, at Union University um, young man who uh, from from gosh I guess it was University of Wisconsin and uh, one of the first things that he told us was was that he was a Cis male married to a cis female, right? I mean (laughs) the the need to clarify that, right? Uh, So I think that the – I think that it is so well-established in elite secular culture in America now um, that it's going to be really something for the court to resist that sort of uh, momentum.
0: So, Hunter, um, one, one question that our listeners are asking a lot about right now is um, the 1619, um, what I'll call series, by the by the New mm-hmm. York Times. And I recognize that the New York, New York Times is not something that everybody is reading, but it is the most read, um, uh, most frequently uh, referred to um, uh, news outlet in terms of print media and journalism. And this sixteen nineteen um, conversation i mean it 's an important one there 's no question that when we when we talk about the history of America and we talk about our history with slavery there 's no question that the year sixteen nineteen is significant and integral. but it seems as if and actually there's reporting by other outlets uh, on this topic that the New York Times is actually seeking to redefine the entire conversation through this sixteen nineteen series. Um, So I just, you know, I guess maybe some reflections on the intersection of the way journalists and journalism um, changes the way we understand the meaning of words and and how they can almost redefine history.
4: Yeah, I I think that um, without without being too bombastic about it, I think that The New York Times is trying to redefine the nature of the American founding. So basically Mm. what. They're saying is is that 1776 is not the decisive year, 1619 is the decisive year, and so uh, the Declaration of Independence and seeking freedom from Britain and the right to govern themselves that's not that's not what's at the core of American identity, uh, but rather that slavery, slavery itself is the core of American identity and American history, and so they would seek to interpret everything through that, and then basically to argue. That uh, that it was only through the civil rights struggle that America gained any kind of nobility or worthiness. Um, so it so it is a it is very much a, a frontal attack on the very question of American identity.
0: Um. So we might have to. I to forget which microphones actually plugged in. <laughs> I'm in the dark. We hear you. I don't know. Have you ever Have you ever like tried to do your job? In the dark, and you're not used to doing it completely in the dark. I'm I'm having a I'm, I'm having an experience of uh, temporary blindness. I don't know what time it is. I don't know what topics we're talking about. I have no access to my computer, and so I'm I'm literally operating in the dark right now, which may may be worthy of a blog post later in the day when the power comes back on. Um, so let me let me conclude. Let me circle back around to the concept of a dress code because ultimately the case that's before the Supreme Court in relationship to gender identity. Um, is going to come down to whether or not employers can have a dress code based on biology so let 's return to the conversation about a dress code. Does your university have a dress code?
4: Uh, yes, we do yes
0: okay is it different for biological females and biological
4: males no we don't i, I don't think that we I don't think that we have that kind of differentiation
0: okay it's so probably I just re-
4: sort of a, just sort of a sort of a modesty kind of a you know there, it, it probably specifies professional dress for men and women. Okay. Uh, but I don't think I don't think there's anything about you know pants or anything like that.
0: So see, then then I think we're going to get to. I mean, I hope this is not where this is headed at university campuses. But if somebody wanted to test that, right? What's the oldest profession in the world, and what do those professionals wear? <laughs>
4: don't you mean you mean like, farming I don't, farming? I don't think you can you use mean?
0: the term yeah I don't think you can use the term professional dress today and not not think that somebody is gonna at some point show up in the professional dress of the oldest profession in the world
4: which may be farming you're right I, I think we'd be no I think I, I think we'd be okay with that I, I don't think that we'd have a problem with that the issue is gonna be uh if a woman can show up for work uh, dressed in the same way that a man does so you know wearing Wearing the the dress slacks in the suit, not a women's suit, but a men's suit, uh, or vice versa. The the more disquieting thing will be when the when your, you know, six foot two male colleague shows up in a dress. That's what this case that's is right. probably really about, right? That's and exactly,
0: that's a, exactly right.
4: And 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 there's going to be no barrier to that. Um, that that's going to sail through. <laughs>
0: All right. Um, I'm pretty sure I'm at the point where I'm supposed to be taking a break. Hunter Baker, thank you so much for bearing with me um, in the dark this morning. Um, and thank you for being a person who always sheds light on the conversations of the day. We really appreciate it. Folks can find right. you at uh, hunterbaker.wordpress.com or on Twitter at Hunter Baker. Have a great day, my friend.
4: All right. Thank you. Thanks.
0: All right. So I'm going to have to... Um, Uh, ask my brother Paul, who is on the line as well, to uh, let me know um, how long am I supposed to talk before the official end of the hour since it's dark where I am.
2: (laughs) You have about 30 seconds.
0: Oh, friends, we have 30 seconds. So in the next 30 seconds, let me encourage you in your walk of faith with Jesus Christ. Um, and, And let me just say that wherever you are today, even if it feels like you're in the dark, the light of Christ is shining forth Uh, He has come, and he is good, and he is uh, the one in whom we abide and find our life. Hey, I hope you hear joy in my voice. It's a joy to be with you this morning. we got another hour here together. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app.